Welcome to Wilderness Podcast, a passion project about wilderness and wild places, with your host, Adam Bronstein. In this episode of Wilderness Podcast, I interview John Allen, forest supervisor with the Deschutes National Forest. And the issue we talk about is a new limited entry permit system that is coming into place here in Central Oregon. This is where I live, and it's certainly been big news around the area. Uh, We're seeing a large increase in visitation numbers to our wilderness areas. The Deschutes National Forest, along with the Willamette National Forest, they both share jurisdiction over these areas. Um, At question are the Mount Jefferson Wilderness, the Mount Washington Wilderness, the Three Sisters Wilderness, the Waldo Lake Wilderness, and the Diamond Peak Wilderness. And we're seeing increased use numbers of over 100%, and this is since 2011. So with the increase in, in people, we've got more erosion on the trails, more campsites, more trash, human waste. And with large numbers of people going to these areas, it starts to degrade that wilderness experience of solitude that so many people are after when they're, when they're heading in. So with that said, I bring you John Allen. Well, listen, thank you very much for meeting with me and, and um, talking about some of these issues and, and some of the wilderness impacts that, that yeah, your office is it. experiencing. So could you just first tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I've been in the Forest Service a long time, almost 40 years with the Forest Service. Um, I uh, grew up in San Diego, California, which is certainly an urban setting, but uh, you know, my family and my dad and mom were uh, always inclined to be outdoors, whether it was on the ocean, out in the desert, out in the mountains of Southern California. And then my mom's side of the family is here from the Pacific Northwest, and, and they were farmers and loggers and mill workers and rural people. And uh, we used to spend a lot of time up here in Oregon in the summer and uh, looking up at those cascades. I always knew that's where I wanted to be. We traveled as a family quite a bit. Uh, when I was 13, my family uh, drove the Alaskan Highway uh, from its beginning all the way to its end there in Fairbanks, and that was back in the days when it wasn't paved. It was gravel. We probably got, as my dad would say, way too many flat tires, and uh, we took a trip across Canada and ended up in Newfoundland once, took the ferry across to Newfoundland. So my dad was a little bit of an adventurer as much as he could be for somebody who was tied down to a 40-hour-a-week job. So I'm just going to read a, a section uh, of the Wilderness Act for listeners, and maybe we can just talk about the meaning and significance a little bit of the Wilderness Act. In order to assure that an increasing population, accompanied by expanding settlement and growing mechanization, does not occupy and modify all areas within the United States and its possessions, leaving no lands designated for preservation and protection in their natural condition, it is hereby declared to be the policy of the Congress to secure for the American people of present and future generations the benefits of an enduring resource of wilderness. For this purpose, there is hereby established a national wilderness preservation system to be composed of federally owned lands designated by wilderness as wilderness areas. And these shall be administered for the use and enjoyment of the American people in such manner as will leave them unimpaired for future use and enjoyment as wilderness, and so as to provide for the protection of these areas, the preservation of their wilderness character, and for the gathering and dissemination of information regarding their use and enjoyment as wilderness. Can we talk about the meaning of wilderness? Sure. 
Well, you know, and um, the words the, in the Wilderness Act, in some degrees, while they're they're law, they're also a degree of art, and and I think that's something land managers always appreciate, because in in art there's interpretation. Uh, the words in in the act talk about the enjoyment of the wilderness by the American people, but it also talks about the preservation of wilderness character and. And sometimes those come into conflict. Uh, how much can the American people enjoy a certain place but still have preservation of the wilderness character? And, and that's where I think we as land managers come in, trying to find that balance where uh, we still allow um, appropriate access to wilderness but not uh, degrade the character for the long term and future generations. Both of our forest plans, the Willamette and Deschutes forest plans, talk about different categories of wilderness. And in our forest plans, we talk about four categories. We talk about pristine, primitive, semi-primitive, and transition. So like, you know, the trailhead there at Devil's Lake going into Green Lake is, is really transitional wilderness. Um, you're going to see a lot of people. You're going to see part of the landscape altered by humans and, and things like that. And so in our forest plans, our goal is to maintain the existing character or improve it. Um, and that's one of our great challenges is how do you prevent degradation of the wilderness and just try to maintain its current or existing character. And that's what really drove us to start this Wilderness Strategies project is how can we maintain or improve the character of these Cascade Wilderness areas. So these subsequent classifications in the forest plan of wilderness um, – do those come about as as a degradation? Like, are you applying a standard over time of of use, and then they're they're sort of recategorized? Yeah, we do long term limits of acceptable change data collection on number of trails, size of trails, number of campsites, size of campsites. So we use our our data to continually monitor whether we're seeing uh, main, maintenance, degradation, or improvement of wilderness character. And then those those designations can change with, with time? Yeah, they can. And, and we've certainly seen, due to the explosion of use at many of our popular areas, we've seen some degradation of character. Okay, I'm going to read another section of the Wilderness Act here. Um, this is on page 1, section C. Definition of wilderness. A wilderness, in contrast with those areas where man and his works dominate the landscape, is hereby recognized as an area where the earth and its community of life are untrammeled by man, where man himself is a visitor who does not remain. An area of wilderness is further defined to mean, in this act, an area of undeveloped federal land retaining its primeval character and influence. Without permanent improvements or human habitation, which is protected and managed so as to preserve its natural conditions and which, generally appears to have been affected primarily by the forces of nature, with the imprint of man's works substantially unnoticeable, has outstanding opportunities for solitude or a primitive and unconfined type of recreation, has at least 5,000 acres of land or is of sufficient size as to make practicable its preservation and use in an unimpaired condition, and may also contain ecological geological, or other features of scientific, educational, scenic, or historic value. Any any comments on, on yeah, that? Yeah, and again, I'll go back to the language in the Wilderness Act. I think one of the beauties of the artful crafting of the language is it's really subject to your own personal values and interpretation. 
And, and, and in many ways, some people look at that as uh, difficult. I think myself and my peers, are, are my co-land managers, really look at the value-laden language in the Wilderness Act as an opportunity to really try to understand what the values are that people have out there. And I think solitude is a great example. Um, for some, solitude is to not see another person all day. For some, solitude is, well, it's okay if I see 200 people today. I, I had a great experience, and I, I connected to nature. And so my, my point or thought there is there really is no right answer, um, but that's why as land management agencies we go back to our long-term limits of acceptable change monitoring data that we do where we actually monitor the impacts on the wilderness and really use that as a guide is if, if we're improving, maintaining, or, or losing character in the wilderness. What we've really seen in some of our most popular areas is a 10- and 20-fold increase of use. And when you get that kind of human use in, in popular areas like Obsidian or Green Lakes or Tam MacArthur Rim, you're going to start to see impacts and, uh, you know, some people don't view that as a negative thing because the impacts sometimes are not that visible to the human eye. But, again, I go back to, uh, you know, our charge is to maintain or improve wilderness character, not have degradation. I use a good example. I was the district ranger at uh, McKenzie in the early 90s when we uh, put in the obsidian limited entry area. And that area was heavily impacted, um, way overused, there was resource damage, and solitude was, I'll, I'll say, was an elusive uh, uh, character of that area. When we put in the limited entry area permit system, we'd, we'd had some initial resistance, but I think in, in two to three years, the public who really cares about that part of the world saw the improvement, and, uh, you know, the in general, people in the Northwest have been very, very supportive of our management actions in areas like the Obsidian. So some of the wilderness character and condition has, has been brought back to that area? Do Correct. You after, Definitely. After the wilderness character has improved dramatically. What do you think happened in, in 2014 when, when you saw uh, such a big increase in, in wilderness use here in Central sure, Oregon? Sure. I think a couple things happened here in Central Oregon in some of our most popular wilderness areas. First of all, the country in Central Oregon came roaring out of the recession, and you could see it in visitor numbers to the forest. You could see it in the motel, hotel, transient room taxes. More people were visiting Bend, Central Oregon. And then social media just has really taken off. You know, somebody taking a hike up into uh, No Name Lake and Broken Top can, can put it on their Instagram, and all of a sudden 3,000 people have seen it, and then they spread the word. So... You know, social media, the country coming out of the recession, and... Uh, Hollywood, too, right? Cheryl Strait yeah, and Wild. Yeah, we certainly uh, saw a huge pulse of folks uh, coming up the Pacific Crest Trail. And honestly, the great part about it th that I don't see as a detriment is, you know, our society, our culture is looking to be more outdoor-oriented, and that's a good thing. Um, we want more people to take advantage of the healthy opportunities on their public lands, but sometimes when you reach critical thresholds of too many people, you've got to put in some management restrictions. Our wilderness rangers and staff here and then our partners in wilderness management, uh, like friends of the High Cascade Wilderness and Great Old Broads, we work really hard to spread the word and how to practice leave no trace in your visitation to the wilderness areas and, uh, and, and try to build that ethic in our outdoor visitors to the wilderness areas. 
Um, you know, folks who may be geocaching in the wilderness, you know, it'd be too strong a word for me to say that's unethical. But what I would say is, uh, are you practicing leave no trace? And uh, th- I think that's the one question you ought to ask yourself. Okay, so looking at the Central Cascades Wilderness Strategies Project, can you please describe what a limited entry permit system is and what it's shaping up to look like? Sure, and I think we can look to the limited entry area systems that already exist around the West and on the Willamette, like at Obsidian and Pamelia. There's so many permits per day. Um, We know what the average group size is for day users and overnight users because we've got 25 years of of permit data for our wilderness areas. And so we try to limit the number of people in a certain area where we don't degrade the wilderness character. And from our experiences at Pamelia and Obsidian, we've got a pretty good handle on how much these fragile alpine areas can take without uh, uh, degradation. And so we've done that for all of our trailheads and the vegetation types that people will be visiting from these trailheads. We've looked at permit systems all over the West, um, like uh, down on the John Muir Trail, up at Mount Adams, up in the Enchantments in Washington, Boundary Waters, uh, where permit systems exist. And we're trying to find that sweet spot of allowing people as much access as possible, but trying to prevent uh, further degradation into these areas we all love. So this is an issue of of carrying capacity, right? Yeah, I think that would be one way of describing it. We've also, building into our management decision, the two national forests are going to have an adaptive management strategy approach. So, like I said, we'll continue to monitor sites. We'll continue to know how many people are going in each trailhead. And if we find out with this decision we just didn't get it right, we will have the opportunity to administratively either put in a little bit more restrictions or maybe allow uh, more visitors into certain areas. Why impose limited entry? Uh, I guess I'm going to play devil's advocate. Shouldn't all Americans be able to access their public lands? Yeah, I think that's a real legitimate question. And, And some of the folks who really struggle with why we're thinking this way have asked me and and others that question. Um, I think what it comes down to is, as land management agencies, we have forest plans that uh, say we have to maintain for certain standards. Overall, I think uh, we have a conservation ethic in the Forest Service to leave a place in, in, in better condition than we found it, and that's an ethic that we think it's important to have. And, and I You'll find very, very few people in, in our country who disagree with that statement. And so if you can find that common ground of we want to leave a place in just as good or better condition as I found it, then in your most popular areas that are, quote, getting loved to death, you're going to have to have uh, some limited entry area. I've been around these Cascade Wilderness areas for a long time. Like I said, I was the ranger at McKenzie back in 1992. Uh, when we did the first analysis for the Obsidian Limited Entry Area and also Pamelia up there at Detroit. And so I've watched and observed because I've been out there myself as a visitor, as a recreationist, as a wilderness user, and I've seen the character of some of these heavily used places change. And uh, campsites get bigger. The riparian area is, is getting impacted more heavily. Uh, unfortunately, there's a lot of human waste and trash and it's, uh, we've just really uh, seen just an immense amount of impact. 
the last uh, four or five years. If you spent a seven to ten day tour with one of our wilderness rangers, uh, one of the the primary uh, beliefs you would have when you finish that tour is, wow, there's a lot going on out here. If you just walk in on a trail to a lake and back and, and don't see all the things that are going on, you're, you're really missing out what the impacts are. So you're listening to your rangers and those on the ground who are observing this degradation. Oh, so, definitely. So, so you feel, it's a, um, you feel you're, you're mandated to, to, to take steps? Well, you know, mandated seems like a word without uh, much discretion in it. I, I think how I would describe it, uh, uh, it's a strong word too, I would guess. I, I feel compelled to uh, meet the spirit and intent of the Wilderness Act and our forest plans. Um, to, again, either maintain or improve wilderness character for the long run, not not have it uh, degraded. Are there still questions that need answering uh, in terms of implementation of this project? Um, certainly. Um, I'll be the first to admit that um, the trailhead quotas that we have in place, they're probably not all exactly right. Um, it's not going to be a perfect decision. And so our adaptive management strategy through monitoring use levels and our limits of acceptable change data will allow us to adjust um, our use levels. And what have some of the tough choices been to make through this process? I think some of the tough choices is we know we're going to get displacement in some areas. For example, uh, Green Lakes Trailhead or South Sister Climb, where are people going to go next? And so we're working hard at having an appropriate kind of displacement strategy. for Because people, when they go up to South Sister, they're looking for a high elevation experience, that great alpine experience, same at Green Lakes. So we're in the process of expanding and developing some high elevation trails in non-wilderness areas. Uh, we're looking at uh, trail system expansion on Tumalo Mountain, and we're working with Mount Bachelor within their permit area to have new trails that uh, get to the top of Mount Bachelor. And so if an individual or family can't get the uh, limited entry area permit they wanted that day to, uh, to go to maybe Green Lakes or South Sister, they can still hike for free spontaneously uh, to Tumalo Mountain or, or Mount Bachelor. And, again, those are world-class views just like uh, South Sister is. That's great. Yeah, people are going to be looking for that experience, and they are going to go somewhere else. So it's helping to, to facilitate that, that The other thing we're doing, sense. too, is uh, – a lot of people, including myself, you know, at times you're spontaneous. I want to go to a hike somewhere, and I didn't think about it till the night before. And so in our permit system where we have limited entry areas, we're going to have uh, some what I would call not same day but day before permits. Not all the permits will be on the reservation system where you sign up, you know, weeks or months and ahead of time. If you're a spontaneous person, you will have a certain percentage of permits uh, available the day before. Uh, will this be through recreation.gov where these will be available? Yes, they will be. Is there any sort of app that's that's developed for, for this system? Do we know? Uh, we're working with them closely, and, uh, you know, we're going to do the decision here in 2019, but we don't expect to implement any earlier than 2020. So we have, we have a year plus to kind of get the app figured out and working with rec.gov. That's cool. ODF&W just released an app um, for their fishing license and hunting licenses. That's been pretty convenient. Will preference be given to any user groups such as hunters? We're looking really hard at what some of the user groups have provided us as input and concerns. Honestly, uh, because we are coming out with a decision here in about three weeks, 
I'm probably not at liberty to talk about uh, what exceptions we are considering right now because we haven't finalized that yet. What have been some common complaints about the limited entry system that you've heard from people? I think probably the most common complaint is it's too restrictive. And uh, why does it have to be too restrictive? And so we're we're looking real hard at uh, how we can uh, work through those kind of uh, issues. That's one of the reasons that we've over six plus months ago, we decided we needed to develop some other trails like on mm. Mount Bachelor and Tumalo Mountain. Mm-hmm. I think most people will will who object to a, a limited entry permit system, um, and rightfully so, don't believe they're they're part of the impact or the problem. Um, and as land management uh, agency, I think we're all collectively part of the impact, and because uh, not everybody practices leave no trace. So it, it's real difficult to deal with some of the concerns um, when people don't feel like they're part of the impact. What have been some common words of encouragement that you've heard from people? I think a lot of the encouragement we get is folks who've been around a while. and it, it's, it's a lot of folks who've been around these wildernesses most of their adult life. Have, you know, I get comments, well, it's about time you guys did something, or we've been watching that go on for 20 years, and something needs to be done. And, and when people realize the population growth in Central Oregon, the population growth in the Pacific Northwest, um, you know, we have unsustainable use levels in some areas. And it's a real dilemma for us as a land management agency. We we want to optimize public access, but we can't do it at the expense of uh, impacting, destroying our, our, our most iconic places. I think some of the most uh, positive positions is uh, we have a great wilderness volunteer workforce on both of our forests, the Willamette and the Deschutes. A lot of people come out and help us maintain trails, clean up campsites, restore riparian areas. And, and the most positive thing is when people come to us and talk about the impacts and they're glad we're doing something, um, a lot of them didn't know they could volunteer. And we get a lot of new people who are willing to volunteer and just say, how can I help? And uh, that's, that's really heartening. I have a question about the fees. So what will the new fee money be used for? Yeah, the rec.gov system, there'll be two components of it, and that'll be a separate process after we make the wilderness decision. We will do a public process to uh, get input to help us shape how the fee will take place. But they'll be a rec.gov reservation fee, and then there's what we call a stewardship fee, a fee, a stewardship fee based on uh, impact in the wilderness. So, for example, if you're just going on a day hike and just going to be out there three or four hours, your stewardship fee will be a lot less than somebody who's going overnight for four nights. So we'll try to have the stewardship fee kind of based commensurate on your time and impact in the wilderness. Times are most certainly changing are there any messages or statements that you have for your fellow Oregonians or Americans who love their wilderness areas, mourn for their destruction and degradation, and are grappling with the soon-to-be loss of easy access? I always tell people, whether they agree or disagree where we're going with our management decision, that I really appreciate that they're engaged in uh, how they want to see their public lands managed. Um, I, I think our, our country is in this continuing evolution of what is our relationship with wild lands. And, uh, you know, our, our, our predecessors uh, had great insight in establishing things like the Wilderness Act and the Wild and Scenic Rivers Act. 
And uh, a statement I always try to share with folks who are trying to understand where I'm coming from personally and professionally is uh, we're not making any more wild lands in this country. And I, as a land manager, feel like I have a responsibility to maintain and hold on to the wild lands we have so that future generations can have those wildland experiences that we've had the privilege of having. And, and uh, you know, wild lands is really a privilege in, in a country like ours, and, and I hope we always have it for uh, the, the kids and, that come after us. Okay, well, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it, John. Good to spend some time with you here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wilderness Podcast. You can find us online at wildernesspodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe through your podcasting app. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit wildernesspodcast.com backslash support. Thanks for listening.